Hello and welcome to Warwick Podcasts. I'm Emily Little and today I'm joined by Professor Wynne Grant from the University of Warwick's Department of Politics and International Studies, who's going to provide an insight into the current political situation in the UK with a general election looming. Wynne, first of all, when do you think that a, a general election is likely to take place? I think the general election is most likely to take place on May the 6th, when there are due to be local government elections under the provisions of the uh, 1715 Septennial Act, uh, as amended in 1911, the election has to be held uh, by the beginning of June, but I think the May date is more likely. The local elections, do they play an important role? Well, I think if you hold the election on that date, it reduces the cost of the election, and that's an important consideration given the amount of government debt. Also, the hope would be that it would stimulate higher turnout in the local government elections if they're held on the same day as the general election. So how likely is a, a snap election and, and why call one? I think a snap election is very unlikely. The Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, has specifically ruled out an election in March. The benefit possibly of calling such an election would be that he would not have to present um, a budget to Parliament, um, but that would be such a transparent political manoeuvre that I don't think it would do him and the Labour Party very much good. What are the benefits and, and drawbacks of having an election on different dates? Well, uh, historically, if we go back to the period since 1945, elections tend either to be in May, June or October. Twelve of the elections that we've held since 1950 have been on those dates. The 1945 one was rather special because it was held uh, immediately after the war. On the whole, one tries to avoid the main summer months when a lot of people are on holiday. One tries to avoid the depths of winter, particularly the period of, around Christmas. So the sort of late spring, early summer period is a favourable period for an election if one doesn't hold one in October. Is that related to how people are feeling generally? They, it's springtime, the weather's better, feeling better about uh, the world? I think there may be something of that. I mean, in uh, 1970, Harold Wilson held an election in June on a sort of feel-good basis, but it didn't work for him because he was defeated, which was um, rather a surprise at the time. But it's also a question of maximising turnout, although, of course, postal votes are much more readily available now. If you hold the election when a lot of people are on holiday, then the turnout is likely to fall back. As the time limit for the Labour term in government approaches, um, is the political arena going to lose some of its luster by overdosing the population on all this daily speculation? Uh, well, I rather fear that we're going to see, and indeed have already seen, um, a lot of attempts at point scoring by all the parties, and I think electors are going to become rather fed up with that well before an election in May. Um, by that time, they will have other things to focus their attention on, such as the World Cup in South Africa, which will be a distraction um, from the uh, fuss surrounding the election. How important do you think you know, football is to people compared to politics? Well, football, I think, is very important. I mean, in 1970, Harold Wilson was hoping that um, England would do in the world, well in the World Cup and that would uh, boost his uh, re-election chances. And in fact, of course, England got no knocked out of the World Cup and that tended to dent the feel-good factor that he was trying to create. Obviously, the World Cup will be after the election, um, but as we approach it, that and other sporting events will, I think, tend to take people's attention because they want to get away from the relentless point scoring that is going on with the political parties. So can Labour, and indeed the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, gain any tactical advantage from 
dragging out the campaign manifesto, I mean, right back from the first day of the year? Well, I think there are particular challenges for the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats. The Liberal Democrats obviously want to raise their profile in the run-up to the election, and, of course, the fact that Nick Clegg is going to participate in the debates between the party leaders will help them in that respect. I think the challenge for the Conservatives is that although there's a lot of poll evidence that electors are very dissatisfied with Labour and with Gordon Brown in particular, there's still a certain lack of confidence in David Cameron and the Conservatives and what they've got to try and do is build up that confidence in the period between now and May, which is why they've started a poster campaign which specifically focuses on David Cameron without any mention of the Conservative Party. You mentioned the um, the televised debates. That's quite an interesting development. I think it is very important. I mean, it may be yet that there will be a legal challenge by the Scottish National Party to try and stop these debates taking place on the agreed format, but I'm rather doubtful whether that challenge would in fact um, succeed. It will, of course, personalise the contest, um, but there's been a tendency in that direction anyway, although we don't have a presidential system in the United Kingdom. We have been moving in the direction of a system which is more presidential in style. So do you think it will come down to personalities rather than politics? I think it will be both. I think the the personalities are important. Um, Gordon Brown obviously has very uh, negative ratings and um, David Cameron tends to have relatively positive ones. In fact, they tend to run ahead of his party. So that will clearly be a factor. And in previous elections, certainly in 1997, I think the personality of Tony Blair was an important factor in New Labour being so successful. And also now the the personality of Gordon Brown has been criticised in the past. Um, He's been said to be paralysed with indecision over standing as an unelected Prime Minister um, without a fresh mandate, Um, right from his early days back in June 2007 when he took over from Tony Blair. Is this a unique position for a UK Prime Minister to be in? No, not really. I mean, what we have to remember, the constitutional position in the United Kingdom is that we elect a government, we don't elect a Prime Minister. It's not formally a presidential system, even if it's become more presidential in some of its characteristics. So that when um, James Cunahan um, replaced Harold Wilson in the 1970s, no-one said there ought to be an election. It was assumed that if a party uh, leader stands down as Prime Minister, then another member of that party would succeed him, provided that he could command a majority in Parliament. John Major replaced Margaret Thatcher, although, of course, he did hold an election relatively quickly. But there's no constitutional requirement to hold an election if there is a change of uh, Prime Minister during the course of a Parliament. I think, tactically, it was very foolish of uh, Gordon Brown to allow speculation to develop about the possibility of an election after he became Prime Minister. He didn't stop that speculation, indeed, in some respects, his aides encouraged it, and then, of course, he decided not to have such an election, and I think that was um, a disadvantage from his point of view. What do you think this says about Gordon Brown? Well, it's difficult to say exactly what it it says about Gordon Brown because um, I think Gordon Brown is a rather different person face-to-face than from the person that you see in the media, and he's certainly, on an individual one-to-one basis, quite an incisive person in the kinds of questions that um, he asks. Certainly that's my experience from having um, met him. But I think probably on big issues like that, he does sometimes find it difficult to make up his mind. And it is quite difficult, I think, to take a decision about whether, in fact, to stage an early election when you could lose your majority. 
And of course, planning an election um, involves a lot of analysis, um, the time of year, economic status of the country, budgets, opinion polls. There is actually a great deal of deliberating before they take this decision. Well, there is. And obviously, Labour has tried to um, hang on as long as they possibly can in the hope that there will be better economic news, that the economy will start to recover, and that this will move voters in their favour. has to be said, it didn't really help the Conservatives very much in 1997. In 1997, the economy was actually in a very good shape. I mean, you know, international reports on the economy were very favourable, but it didn't help the Conservatives at all in the election of that year. And I think we've reached a situation where there's a desire for a change, that, that in a democracy you get alternation of parties in government every so often. James Callaghan used to call that a big sea change that happens every so often. And I think quite likely we are seeing such a big sea change at the moment in British politics. How confident of victory, or at least some sort of swing, do you think the three main parties are at at the moment? Well, I think the first thing that has to be said is there's a very complex relationship in this country um, between votes and seats. First, the Labour vote tends to be distributed more efficiently than the Conservative vote. That is to say, the Conservatives tend to pile up large majorities in their safe constituencies and the Labour vote is better distributed across the um, country as a whole. Against that we do have poll evidence that the Conservatives are doing better in the key marginal seats, particularly in the south of England. I think one of the interesting factors is the Liberal Democrats. Um, First of all, what is their share of the vote going to be and how is that going to relate to the number of seats they win? I mean, they could do quite well in terms of vote and still lose quite a lot of seats to the Conservatives, particularly in the south of England, and that will be a very important factor in determining how many seats the Conservatives win overall. I mean, I think the Liberal Democrats feel, yes, they may lose seats to the Conservatives in southern England, but they will win seats off uh, Labour elsewhere, particularly in the north. I'm not so sure that that will happen. I think you could see a situation in which the Liberal Democrat vote holds up quite well, but the number of seats they have in Parliament diminishes quite significantly, to the benefit largely of the Conservatives. How likely is um, a hung Parliament? Well, a hung Parliament is possible in the sense that you you could, for example, the Conservatives would have the largest number of seats, but they wouldn't have a majority over all other parties. Um, Because you have to remember the other parties are very fragmented. You know, the Conservatives could have quite a substantial majority over Labour, And then there would obviously be some Liberal Democrats. There would also be some Scottish and Welsh Nationalists, uh, MPs from Northern Ireland belonging to various parties, and independents of various sorts. So, effectively, you you could maintain your government because it would be very difficult for the opposition parties to coalesce against you. And what do you think of um, David Cameron's suggestion of having a, a war cabinet involving all parties? It's an interesting suggestion. Um, it will be I, the Liberal Democrats have responded relatively positively, and, and for a party like the Liberal Democrats, it enhances their status to be in that kind of arrangement. They had a similar arrangement with Labour after 1997 in relation to devolution and other constitutional matters. So I can well see the Liberal Democrats um, involving themselves in such a war cabinet. Whether, in fact, Labour would be willing to do so is something that remains to be seen. Obviously, we've had war cabinets in the First World War and the Second World War. Uh, The conflict in Afghanistan is a very serious conflict, and it does involve the loss of lives of British troops. Um, 
Whether it's a conflict on the scale of the First and Second World War, I think, is, a, is another question. Once again, we're, we're concentrating on the three main parties, but how much of an impact do you think the likes of UKIP, Respect and the BNP will play in this election? I think they can make an impact in terms of taking votes away from the main parties. Um, their best hope of winning a seat for UKIP is where they are contesting the seat of the Speaker, who was formerly a Conservative MP, and there won't be a Conservative candidate in that constituency. Um, the Speaker is in some respects a relatively controversial figure, so they, the UKIP certainly hope they can win that seat. Whether they, they can, I think, is another matter. Um, for the BNP, possibly their best hope of winning a seat is in Barking. Um, at least that's where they will probably come closest to uh, one of the main parties. But I think under a first-past-the-post system, it's very difficult for these parties to win seats. Now, it's, it's true that George Galloway did this for respect um, at the last election. He is moving to a different constituency because there's been redistricting in that part of um, East London. He could well hold his own personal seat, and in a sense that will be a result like the result for the independents in Kidderminster, where the independent MP is seeking a third term of office. I think respect as a party will have much less impact in this election than it did last time. UKIP could take votes away from the Conservatives. I think, you know, that Conservatives who uh, feel very strongly about the European Union or feel that David Cameron has moved the party too much towards the centre in the quest for votes, um, one thing they could do is vote for UKIP. I don't think large numbers of them will, but it could be significant in very marginal seats, um, which are determined by a few hundred votes. BNP, I, I think it's a, a bit more complex to analyse the BNP vote. Some of it comes from people who wouldn't vote otherwise. So it's not really uh, votes that are being taken away from other parties. I think if there is a party that's likely to suffer from the BNP, it's more likely to be the Labour Party than the Conservative Party, and one can certainly see that in seats like Barking. And the likes of UKIP, Respect and the BNP are very much based on policy, aren't they? Yes, they have, they have very clear um, policy programmes. I mean, obviously UKIP has a particular emphasis on Britain's relationship with the European Union, but it has broader policies than that. The BNP has a raft of um, policies, as does uh, Respect. It's, it's rather different, of course, where you've got independent MPs like the one in Wire Forest who um, originally fought on the issue of the National Health Service. If he wins a third term, that will be the first time under the modern franchise that an independent MP has won a third term in Parliament. So, finally, will this election go down in history as an important one? Yes, I think it is an important election. I think, as, to use James Callaghan's words again, it is one of these sea-change elections, which you get at every so often, that it's very likely, not certain, but very likely that we will see a change of government, and a change of government taking place in very difficult circumstances, given the size of the government debt in the UK, given the fact that very difficult choices will have to be made, whoever is in government after May or June, about uh, raising taxes and cutting public expenditure. Well, thank you very much for your valuable insight into British election politics, Wynne, and for taking time to talk to me today. Thank you.